Is financial literacy mandatory in the schools around you? Today, we've got a special guest who actually works in this field and getting and advocating financial literacy for our kids. Bienvenida to the Her Dinero Matters podcast, a mixed language podcast hosted by me, Jen Hemphill, to help you become the reign of your money and love your dinero more. If you are needing some inspiration and encouragement at this very moment, you have come to the right place. Gracias por compartir este tiempo conmigo. Now let's jump in to today's Dose of Money Confidence. Hola, hola, ¿qué tal? This is Jen Hemphill. Thank you so much for joining me today. As you may or may not know, this month is Financial Literacy Month. And today's guest is fully immersed in getting financial literacy in high schools around the country. Let me tell you a little bit about Yaneli Espinal. She is a former classroom teacher turned financial educator who creates YouTube and Instagram content about money as Ms. Be Helpful. That is what she's known for. And she also works full-time as the director of educational outreach at the nonprofit called Next Gen Personal Finance. Today, we learn not only about Yaneli's own personal finance journey and story, but her work, her very important work as a financial educator and advocate in getting more financial literacy in our schools. Lista, vamos a conocer Janeli. Bienvenida, Janeli. I'm so excited to have you here. You are just such a force to be reckoned with. You do a lot just in the world of financial education, and I'm really excited to learn more about you. I've been digging a little bit, not stalkerish way, in a normal way, I think, but I'm just really excited to learn more about you and your story because that's what we do here. So welcome. Well, thank you. Gracias. I'm so excited to be here. I feel like I've been doing the rounds of trying to get to know as many people in the financial literacy, personal finance empowerment space, and you are absolutely a key player. Oh, it's so exciting to be able to connect with you here. Oh, well, thank you. I think highly of you as well. So <laughs> let's start off at the beginning. So take us back in time, maybe when you were a little girl or a teenager, some experience that you had, something that you heard that really impacted who you are today when it comes to finances. Give us all the scoop. You know, it's interesting because I never really thought a lot about like making money and just like my finances until I got to high school. And in high school, that's where I found out my first job and I started making, you know, my own little paychecks every two weeks. I was actually interning at an architecture firm because I went to an arts high school, LaGuardia High School in New York City. And it's a very well-known school because you have to spend half of the day doing your academic classes, whatever those math, science, ELA, all the classes you have to take. 
But then the other half of the day, you spend doing your talent, your discipline. So whether that's theater, vocal music, dance, visual arts, which was my major, technical, doing stage design and all that kind of thing, or instrumental music. So there were all these majors. For me, I just kind of always assumed that you use the talents that you have to make money. If you like to sing, you're going to become a famous singer. Or if you like to do theater, you're going to be on Broadway or you're going to be in a movie. And that to me was just always the obvious way to you know, imagine my life in the future, like making money. And then I remember one time I had, I was at my architecture internship, which was my, like my little paid gig that I had after school. And one of the people working there, I forget his last name, but his first name was Alex. And he had like a group of interns down in the basement who were all working on building a table. We were building a table from scratch, which was going to be like our workspace where we did, you know, drafts and plans and emails and all that. And we're in the middle of building it. And he said, you know, you have to stop. You have to be really careful when you're doing these things, like picking up heavy metal or materials or wood because, and the equipment, especially because one thing goes wrong and you get an injury. And what happens when you get an injury? You can no longer do your talent. You can't dance. You can no longer perform. You can, and it made me think like, oh, I never really thought about that. Like, what if I like got into a terrible accident and lose my arm and I can't make art anymore? Like, I just always assumed it was such an easy way to rely on talent to make money. And I never thought like you need a backup in case something goes wrong. How else are you going to be able to make money and continue to sustain yourself if your talent or your passion doesn't work out? And so that was kind of like the first time for me that I started thinking about like, having multiple ways to make money, even though I didn't really, it's kind of like in my subconscious, but that was one of the first memories I have of thinking about that idea of multiple ways to make money. Interesting. And you also have a story of piling up about $20,000 of (laughs) your like credit card debt. So tell us about this, because in high school, that's when you said you had the introduction of really the importance of bringing in extra Mm -hmm. streams of income, right? So tell us about that 20K in credit card debt. What led to that? How did that come to be? Yeah, you know, it's crazy because even though I had that little seed planted in my mind somewhere about that idea that you always need to have backup, you always need to be ready to do something different if you need to pivot or whatever. Of course, I didn't have these words in the language of like pivoting, but like those ideas kind of were planted. That doesn't mean that I did anything about it. I never literally even used that information or that knowledge. It was an awareness that I had kind of in the back of my mind lingering there. But when I got to college, I had actually like five different jobs in college, five different jobs. Five jobs. I worked, yes, I worked in the pizzeria. You took that idea seriously, multiples. (laughs) I mean, I went hard, right? These things were like easy for me to do too, because I was trying to find ways to like make quick money. I wasn't really necessarily thinking about working smart. I was just saying like, I just want convenient, like ways to quickly make the money between my classes. So I worked at the pizzeria and I always closed late at night. And then I would wake up like a little late and just go to my first class, like right on time. And between classes, I would work at the Dean's office on a program that was like coordinating events with alumni to come back and talk about how they use their degree in creative ways. So I coordinated those events. I was also the coordinator for events around Caribbean ancestry and Caribbean heritage. So we did like a whole Caribbean heritage week series of events and we invited speakers and things. And I was in charge of coordinating that. I also worked in the library. So at night before I would go to the pizzeria, I would just literally sit at the library and do my homework. But when people would come in, I had to swipe their cards so they could get into the library. So that was like, okay, swipe your card. All right. And then I would just keep reading. 
in my mind, it was like an easy way to make money. And then the last way I made money, I was an RA. So I was like the advisor mm-hmm. in my dorm, which in my, every school is different. Like some colleges, you have to like work really hard for that money. But on my college campus, it was a joke. Like, I mean, I don't want to say it was a joke, but it was like very easy. You just, you sign up, you apply. If you get accepted, you do like a two week or like a one week training program. And then you just have to make yourself available. Like you have to make sure people have your number or they can come knock on your door if they need you for anything. But the reality is most of the time they don't really bother you. So I was just getting paid every few weeks to be available in case anybody needed anything and to be trained. All of those streams of income, I had maybe you know a couple hundred dollars coming at me every Friday. And what did I do with that money? I wasted all of the money. I, as soon as I got to campus, one of the first things I noticed is that everybody had a MacBook and I had, I don't even know if they make these anymore, but it was like a tiny little laptop called the Lenovo laptop. Yeah, that they was, do. I think that was my- Actually, that's supposed to be a good one. Listen, they're not bad laptops, but at that time, it was the one of the early models because it was like 2007, 2008 when I started college. And that laptop was like a small little model of it. And my freshman year, I was typing a paper. I was so stressed out. I don't know what happened, but my laptop fell off my desk and literally stopped working in the middle of me getting work. It's like the t- most tragic college essay writing story. <laughs> like you're writing a paper and all of a sudden your computer crashes, right? So I was freaking out. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I just used that as an excuse to buy a MacBook because I already wanted the MacBook anyway. So it was just like an excuse, right? I was always looking for a reason or an excuse to justify getting things that I know were not really, you don't really need that specific brand or that specific version. You can get something more affordable. And that is one example of how I would like spend way more than I needed to. I could have gotten a Dell laptop for much less. I could have bought a used MacBook instead of buying a brand new one. There's a lot of options. Okay. I didn't want to get creative. I just wanted to go to the Mac store and buy a brand new computer. And so that pattern kept on happening. I started buying shoes. I started buying clothes. I would go to the movies. I would go to get food, restaurants, Dunkin' Donuts, Ben and Jerry's. If we were going to a party, I would pay for stuff. It just became like part of like my lifestyle that if I wanted to do something, sure, I would just put it on my credit card. And if it was 50 bucks, 60, 70 bucks every now and then it wouldn't matter. But guess what? On Friday, when I got my paycheck, it was going to all the credit card minimum payments that were due across all four or five of my credit cards. So that's how I was able to actually maintain excellent credit was because I had always kept my minimum payments paid on time. But then I left the balance that was remaining to keep growing and collecting interest. So it grew to $20,000 across all my credit cards, right? Because the minimum payment ain't going to get you nowhere. And I just didn't really learn that lesson early enough. I was not looking carefully at my bills and my statements to see that the interest was killing me. Like I just paid attention to that minimum, what's due. I paid it on time every month. And that was it. It was just like another item on my to-do list, like fill out my planner, I would go through and see, okay, these are my classes. This is my homework I have to do. These are my projects due. This is my midterm this week. Make sure I pay my minimum balance. And that was it. I didn't think deeply about it. And that's how it ended up ballooning into 20K. And you know what I hear, and I know I'm detracting from the conversation, but I've heard this in our Latinx community where it's banks, like even I've heard it in credit units where I've worked with some couples and they're like, yeah, they told us at the bank that to build our credit, we need to open up this credit card and pay them a minimum payment. I'm like, okay, that is in fact a true statement. You can build credit, absolutely, but at a cost. That's right. <laughs> at a cost. And that drives me nuts. I'm like, here are the bank, even credit unions that we think are like, and I'm not here bashing any particular institution. I'm just saying in general, 
not necessarily the institution is purposely doing this, but they're not educating their employees. I don't think even the employees have a good understanding mm-hmm. of credit. Because how can you tell some? It drives me absolutely nuts. All right. That's right. I detracted here. No, no. It's a great point. It's a great <laughs> yeah. point. Oh, it drives me nuts. That's why my whole career I've kind of shifted to focusing on financial education because at the end of the day, I think that in the Latinx community and in other communities of other ethnic groups as well, there's a lack of trust in financial professionals because we don't know if they're really telling us the truth or if they're telling us something that benefits the institution that they work for, but is not really what's best for us. And so when I come in and say, well, listen, I have no interest in any institution, bank, I'm not representing an organization, a bank, I'm just here to give you free financial education. It's like, it's like refreshing because it's so rare. Everybody's always in it for some kind of other motive. And it's really nice to know that there are some people that just want to educate you and spread financial empowerment. Yeah. And plus, I think with our community and other immigrant communities, it also stems to their own history, the history in their own countries, respective countries, where something happened that caused distrust, right? So do they bring that in? Oh, my goodness, there's so much that we could talk about here. But I want to know about your upbringing. And how maybe some financial lessons or things that maybe your parents have conversations around many talk to Mm -hmm. us about that. Because you're from a big family, right? Yes, a huge family. I always tell people to picture that movie cheaper by the dozen, but like Latinx style because (laughs) we're so many of us and we're like, it was the same kind of ideas from that movie. Like you're trying constantly to buy in bulk, to save money, to just get deals and to pass down hand-me-downs like I don't think I ever remember getting new clothes I was always getting like whatever my older sisters you know didn't wear anymore they would give it to me and or I would go through their closets like can I wear this can I wear this and we were all really just sharing things all the time because we couldn't afford for everybody to get new things all the time right and you know being that we're low income and also such a big family one of the things I remember is that every year for like my very early childhood, we would go to the church and get presents for Christmas from the church. They would like have these giant bags and all the kids would come up to the church and just pick one or two toys that you wanted. And they would just organize them. It would be like presents for a boy age nine to 12, like a gift for a girl age 13 to 15. And so you would go through and tell them, you know, I want a present for a girl and I'm 11 years old. And then they would just pick the ones and you, and so you don't even know what you're going to get. But we were just so excited to be getting to get toys something. because we, yeah, just to have something and everybody would yeah. go home with something. And then once I turned like, I don't know, maybe 11, 12 years old, that my older siblings, so the ones that are like older millennials in their late thirties and early forties now. They were at the age where they actually started making money in their first job. Maybe they had just graduated college or maybe they were working part time and making decent money. And so they actually started buying presents. Then something changed because I realized, oh, now it feels like we have money because all my siblings were not contributing and it wasn't just mommy and daddy struggling. Like, And all of a sudden, every year at Christmas, there would be so many presents around the tree. And I just assumed it's because we have money now. Little did I know later in my life, when I turned like maybe 17, 18, my sisters sat down and told me that they racked up a bunch of credit card debt because they were buying presents for us every year for Christmas because they felt bad that Mm. we all grew up not really getting things and just kind of waiting to get one present from the church. Like they didn't want to keep repeating that. And since they had a little money, they figured let's get the credit cards to buy all the presents and we start paying it back little by little. They all did like all the older siblings went into a lot of debt just to try to create more happiness for their family in a way they didn't get. And it kind of stuck with me. 
that that's like a dangerous thing. It's like it because it's coming from a good intention. It's coming from such a good place that you want to provide more. But instead, you're actually burying yourself in a worse financial situation for a short feeling of joy and happiness, right? And so I try really hard to always remind myself of that and make sure when I'm making decisions, like I don't go back to my childhood and be like, you know what? I never got to enjoy nice sneakers and new clothes and shoes. So now I'm going to buy myself any nice clothes and shoes and sneakers that I want. Like I try to force myself to be aware. Like, why are you buying this? Is it because you're trying to go back and get revenge that you didn't get these things as a kid, you were deprived and now you're going to get it? Or is it because there's another reason? Like you generally just really want it or you worked really hard and you deserve to treat yourself this one time. It is not like a consistent habit of always getting the latest new drops and things. Like I have to constantly remind myself that it's very easy, especially when you start to have disposable income that you want to just spend it and treat yourself and do more. So I do have certain things now in my budget where I allow myself to like treat myself a little bit. But for the most part, I remind myself, listen, there's going to be bigger goals that matter. And you got to remember not to just use that mindset of like struggle in your childhood to make decisions with money today. Yeah. And I've also seen um, parents where they were in a better financial spot than their parents have it. And even though they were in a better financial spot, they go all out with the kids on credit cards. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, we got a job. We'll take care of it. But not understanding, I think maybe, I, you know, I haven't asked this question, maybe if they take care of that minimum payment, they're good. They're being good stewards of their money, not understanding right. <laughs> the crazy interest rate that accumulates. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now, you were a school teacher at one time. What did you teach? I'm curious. Was it visual yeah. arts? Was it art? No, I taught third and fourth grade reading, math. Okay. And yeah, it was primarily just reading and math. We had like some other teachers that would push in for science and art and all the electives, but I was really primarily doing the reading, writing and math. Nice. But then you became a financial educator, which is what you do now. What led? Because you hinted a little bit about that earlier, but mm-hmm. what led you to decide, you know what? Enough is enough. This is what I want to do. Yeah. Well, in 2011, I graduated college. I joined Teach for America, which I became a teacher. And I taught until about 2013, 2014. At that point, I was like, okay, after the school year, I already know that I don't want to come back and continue being a teacher because I don't imagine myself being one of the lifers that like really retires in teaching. And I doing this every single day, day in and day out. I knew that there were things that I wasn't teaching that I really wanted to be teaching. We weren't talking about money in school. We weren't talking about a lot of the things that I was struggling with at that time, myself being that I still had a lot of credit card debt. And then the other thing was just like the way the school system is set up in New York City, the Department of Education, it's very archaic. It's such an old school system. It felt to me like it was just impossible to create change. And that if I wanted to create change, it wasn't going to be able to be as a teacher, but I would really need to be able to create systemic change to change the way that our school system teaches. And so I kind of already started thinking about that idea. When I left teaching, I knew I wanted kind of like some business experience because I didn't really know much about money and I thought that would help me. So I worked in private education for a few years at Kumon, which um, was doing like after school math and reading program. And I had a center in Manhattan that was like hundreds and hundreds of students. But it was primarily families that lived in the uh, affordable housing complex where the Kumon Center was located. So it was actually really a perfect fit for me because I was able to help families that were kind of on a stipend to be able to attend Kumon and like culturally it was a good fit. But the Kumon curriculum is very strict. 
it's, it's a Japanese program. So it's a very strict kind of a routine. You have to exactly the same way every single day. And it doesn't really allow for a lot of creative thinking or creativity in terms of like talking about what you're thinking and what are the different ways you could solve this problem. That's not the way it is at all. It's like, there's one way to do it and you have to do it that exact way. If you don't do it that way, it's wrong. And I started to see the more creative kids getting frustrated by that. Like there's only one right answer kind of thinking. And I'm like that in Western math, they're starting to shift the, uh, thinking away from right or wrong and thinking more about like, explain your thinking. What kind of process would you follow to answer, to find the answer? There's a multiple ways to get to the answer. So I kind of got a little bit deflated in that work. And I started looking for more, a little bit more like fulfilling, exciting kind of work. And that's when I decided to go to the nonprofit sector because I knew that that's where a lot of the people that I was friends with that were in the nonprofit space were actually very happy and felt like their work was very fulfilling. So I started working at a nonprofit that did literacy intervention during school instead of after school. So we would go to different classrooms, pull out the kids that were really struggling with reading and sit with them for an hour and work with them on their reading and vocabulary. And then after the lesson, they would go back to class. So they essentially just got extra reading help from one-on-one with a tutor. And that was amazing. I love that job. I did that for three years. And I managed all the school partnerships in Brooklyn and the Bronx and Harlem. So it was like perfect for me being that I'm from New York and I knew the school system well. And I, it was a community that I wanted to serve. But of course, I was like, all right, all this time I've been creating videos on YouTube because there's something that I want people to learn, which is how to be smart with money and how to understand the credit system in this country and understand navigating, borrowing and lending in a smart way, not going into too much crazy debt without having a plan to exit the debt. And investing to build wealth, like, oh my goodness, investing changed my life. And I was like, I'm going to just start making videos because (laughs) I think there's so many books out there already. There's so much information out there, but I really did see like a lot of people were going to YouTube to find out how to do things, like how to blank, how to blank. I was like, you know what? I'm going to start making these videos. And then little did I know the videos just started to blow up and especially the videos about credit. Like a lot of people are like, oh, your videos about credit are the reason why I have a good credit score. And you know, I found you on uh, YouTube and Instagram because of your credit videos. And so that was really my first entry point to like sparking this passion in teaching people about how the financial system works. And then I got so lucky because I left my job and I was spending a summer in Barcelona with my boyfriend. We had saved enough money. He was about to change jobs. I didn't really know what I wanted to do next, but I was like, you know what? Let's just take the time to figure it out. So we're not just like jumping to another job, but like really doing it with intention. And so we're in Barcelona that summer and I get an email from NGPF, Next Gen Personal Finance. And before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. They're like, hey, we really love your YouTube videos and we want to interview you for our podcast and also put some of your videos in our financial literacy curriculum. And I was like, what financial literacy curriculum? I didn't even know that that was a thing because I've been a teacher and I've never seen financial literacy taught in any of the schools that I've been in. So we started this conversation and little did I know it would be like, it was the perfect job landing right in my lap that I would be there three years later, I'm still there and really just championing a solution to this problem of the lack of financial literacy in our country. We have a clear solution. We have a free curriculum, free teacher training and free advocacy to make sure that more states are requiring this. It's like, there's no excuse. Like, oh, our school can't afford it. We don't have it in our budget. Oh, it's free. There's nothing to pay right. for. Oh, you know what? Well, the teachers don't really know how to teach it. No excuse. We have free teacher training. They'll come to our sessions and we'll teach them exactly wow. how to use these materials. 
And so it's interesting to now be championing financial education because you see what the excuses, the reasons that people say that like, oh no, it won't work, but oh, but we can't do it because this, this, this. And I've been becoming better at knowing what to say each time because there really is no excuse. Every single person in this country deserves to learn it and needs to learn it. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's time for change. I'm taking a quick second to interrupt your listening to remind you. This show relies on your support to continue to grow. If you get a ton of value, it would mean everything if you can hit the follow button on wherever you listen to, share with a friend, and give us a quick and honest review. Gracias y te mando muchos abrazos. Well, I love it. And I think, like you said, it's the perfect job and just having watched you on YouTube and and Instagram and your personality, which the people you listening right now, you can tell us a lot of energy, high energy. I love it. Oh, yeah. And and I'm curious to know with your experience, your own journey, what you're doing now, what do you wish to leave? Like you're a financial educator. So what Mm -hmm. do you wish to leave? What kind of impact? Yeah. I think about when you ask me, like, what do you want to leave behind? What impact? I think about the word legacy. And I always say the quote from Hamilton, like legacy is planting a seed in a garden that you never get to see grow. Mm. And that makes me a little bit sad to think about that. My ultimate like ambition is to be able to see the garden grow and also that I'm planting the seeds. So right now in the past three years, once I started working at NGPF in 2018, there were only five states that had a full semester class, a full class that you have to take to graduate with nothing but personal finance in it. Checking, saving, budgeting, investing, insurance, taxes, paying for college, entrepreneurship, psychology of money, credit, managing credit, all of these topics. You know, you can't put that in two weeks or in a one day seminar. No, you can't. It needs a full 18 weeks of instruction minimum. If you can do a full year, that's even better. And only five states were really doing that. Now. We're speaking in November. So last week, um, late October, Ohio became the 10th state. The governor signed the bill into law. So now 10 states have a full semester that is required for graduation for every single student that goes through the public school system. And that to me is amazing. I'm starting to feel like there is a chance that I can see the garden blooming and growing. Even though I started planting seeds a long time ago, even just with YouTube videos and free webinars and sessions at colleges, like just educating people about personal finance. But now I'm getting to work in, you know, the actual space that's creating this change at the state level and like on a legislative level is really incredible. So my goal would be to get to the point where all 50 states, which is you know, that's the mission of NGPF and the work we do is to make sure that every one of the 50 states has that full semester graduation requirement so that no student can graduate and say, you know, I mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, but I don't know anything about taxes or credit cards. Like, no, we're going to end that. Cut that out. That meme is no longer going to be relevant in another two, three years. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. And I love that you talked about what you do at your work and you mentioned a full semester because I know when I started the work that I was doing, I I was also looking at what states have the financial education and there's such a difference in terms of, yeah, they may have financial education. It could be the week. I don't know if there's actually one day. I would probably be exaggerating. So it's important, like you listening right now, they're 
helping and advocating for the schools to have a full semester. So if you hear that your school system has financial education, inquire about what does that curriculum look like? Because I think that's very important because I know I've seen these maps of like, these are the states that have financial education, but the question lies, well, okay, talk to me about that. That's right. That's <laughs> talk right. to me about that. Because yeah. one semester is incredible. It's, and it's to us, it's like what we call the gold standard. What we say, so there's bronze, which is the bronze level means that it's happening, but it's embedded in another class. Like what you said, like, oh, there's a week of budgeting, but then the rest of the class is marketing and economics or something. The silver standard is it's an elective. So it is a full semester, but it's not required for everybody. Only the kids that are lucky enough to sign up for that elective and get a spot will get that class. And everybody else just has to figure it out on their own. Um, And then the gold standard is full semester guaranteed for every single student to take it before they graduate. And right now, if you're listening, the only states that have this in November of 2021, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, North Carolina, Ohio, Tennessee, Utah, Virginia, and Rhode Island. If your state was not mentioned just now, guess what? It just is not on the list. Even if you think it is, if I didn't say the name of your state, it's not. That means that there's work to do. Maybe 70 or 80% of the kids in the state get access, but we're trying to get 100% of kids access. One example of that kind of a state is like, for example, New Jersey. A lot of people think New Jersey has a requirement. New Jersey does. And some teachers in New Jersey literally will try to fight with me. Like, I know my state does it. I'm like, That's what I was under the impression. Your state is a silver state. That means most kids are getting in through electives. And the fact that it's embedded in another class means they're getting some of it, but we need every student to get a full semester in order for it to really count as the gold standard. And I'm curious, you said Virginia, which is where I reside, and I'm like, a full semester? Yeah. Does that vary by county? Because when you go and advocate for this, obviously you're talking on the state level, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm going to have to ask, I don't recall like a full semester. Yeah. I'm guess my kids. In Virginia, it should be a full year course where the first semester is economics and the second semester is personal financial literacy. Yeah, because I'm like, wait, I knew they had some, but I don't recall it. Yeah, and a lot of states are actually doing that model where they're splitting. Like, for example, North Carolina just passed the law this year in 2021, and they're doing the same thing where it's a full Mm -hmm. year class that you have to take, but the first semester is economics and the second semester is personal finance. So even though you signed up for economics and personal finance, you might think it's just economics, but the semesters are broken up so that you focus on one during each term. Okay. Very interesting. Well, thank you for all that education now. Of course. I'm going to be talking to my boys. (laughs) And if, as you're listening, just make sure, like, if you know your school doesn't have financial education, you can be an advocate and asking, because I know Yaneli and the team at her organization just can't do it alone. So please, 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 if this is something I would hope since you're listening to this podcast and it's a financial education podcast that you would be interested, please, please definitely advocate. And I'm sure if you get in touch with Yanely, she can make it easy for you in terms of reaching who you need to reach. Yeah, for sure. Now shifting gears a little bit, you're a millennial, right? I'm a Gen Xer. <laughs> I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm curious to see. I've seen 
over the past years. And it's awesome to see a lot of millennials like yourself start teaching financial literacy. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, what do you think or what do you project millennials will be like? What will their lives look like when they're in their 50s and in their 60s in comparison to what Gen Xers that were getting there faster than you all and baby boomers at the same age? I'm just curious because right now, of course, millennials are dealing with the lovely student loans. I'm not even going to get started on that. So, you know, what do you think will be different? Yeah. Or maybe the same? You know, I think the key differentiator for me between Gen X and millennials, and this is obviously generally speaking, is that Gen Xers tend to be a little more traditional in their approach to their finances. And millennials are a little bit more modern and creative in their thinking. For example, while a lot of Gen Xers are a lot more comfortable with either a secure business that they're running or real estate investments, or, you know, they're nine to five and having their 401k in place. A lot of millennials are like, you know what, I have all those things, but I'm also going to do all these other extra things like side hustles, side gigs. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be work optional. So like, if I want to take on part-time work, I'm going to be doing something that I'm really passionate about. And maybe I'll work two or three different jobs because I like them all instead of working one job in the same company for all these years and then getting my 401k. But I think we're kind of that first generation to start saying, hey, guess what? Not only is it okay to think differently and outside the box and be creative about your financial approach, but it's also cool and trendy. And like, I think millennials are the ones that made it cool and trendy. And that's why yeah, things like the fire movement popped off and mm-hmm. things like, you know, social media challenges, like no spend month and things like that. We're trying to be creative about our approach. And I think that being locked into a rigid mindset or like the traditional approach where you're thinking like, oh, well, what is it going to look like if you jump from job to job every few years? You know what it's going to look like? It's going to look like a 10% increase every time I go to a new job. There's things that I think like older generations, they stick to these like mantras and these pieces of advice that worked on really, really well, worked a lot for their generations in their time. But right now in 2021 and beyond, it's just not going to apply. It's not going to be relevant for us anymore. Technology has changed things so dramatically, even just from 10 years ago to now. So it's really important for millennials to keep that in mind and not let like all the weight of the problems of not being able to afford a house, not being able to pay back my student loans. I have all this credit card debt. Like, Keep that creative energy that we used to problem solve about getting income and surviving all these different challenges. Keep that creativity and energy when you're thinking about how to navigate problems like your student loans and thinking creatively about how to get access to homeownership. Apply it across the board, not only when it services you and serves you well and it's easy and it feels good, but also when it's a challenge and it's tough. And the last thing I'll say about this is like, we are starting to see a lot more about money mindset. You know, there's money mindset quizzes, you know, BuzzFeed quizzes about money mindset. Like that was never the thing before. And so because of that, it's like, well, let's really lean into that and make sure that we recognize that you cannot solve a problem with the same mindset that created that problem. So we have to dive into as much creative thinking, as many, you know, social media influencers, TikTok or YouTubers, whatever it is for you that helps you to stay grounded in learning more and progressing more financially, because that is actually going to motivate you and inspire you to keep going, especially when it's really, really rough. No, absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that perspective, because I'm always interested, because like I said, I've just been so impressed. I haven't been in business for that long of a time. But when I started this Yes, people, it was like, typically, oh, you got to say, manage your budget, that type of thing. And I'm like, yeah, that's important. But our upbringing has such a huge impact. 
on how we manage money. And I'm like, that's what I wanted to bring to the table. And that's why I started this podcast. So now I'm seeing a lot more talk about money mindset. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so awesome. Yeah. Mindset was spoken about, not that it was never spoken about, but it was never spoken about together with financial education. It was only, you would read it in a book, but if you were into personal development, so maybe business owners, those people maybe really got that piece, but I didn't. I mean, I had to learn the hard way. I was like... I was financially literate. I read all the books and yet I was like, what the heck is going on in our life? Why aren't we in a better financial spot? But anyway. Yeah. You know, you make a good point about like business, the world of business and entrepreneurship. When you read books about business and entrepreneurship, they tend to be very focused on mindset, Mm -hmm. like the, the mentality and mindset is everything in business and entrepreneurship. But when it comes to personal finance, it's missing. Now it's starting to also mm-hmm. bleed over and say, hey, guess what? When it comes to your own personal money, mindset is everything too. Mindset is not only everything in business, because guess what? Business is managing money, just like your personal finances is managing money. So mindset is everything when it comes to managing money, regardless of that's your business or for your right. personal. And now is that we're starting to embrace that. We see more things like the psychology of money and behavioral economics and behavioral finance. A lot of behavioral science is coming out saying the psychology of what's happening in our brain, like social media being really bad for us and nudging us to spend when we don't want to. Like now we're paying attention to these things, but they have always been relevant. Right. And it's such an important conversation. Well, I also wanted to ask, because it just occurred to me, I didn't ask, so I'm kind of going to go back. And this will be the last question because I could ask you all day. I mean, I love talking about, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm curious at your organization at Next Gen. Yeah. You all do a lot of work to bring financial education to the table at high schools. Yeah. Now I'm curious, as a Latinx, and I'm not trying to put more work on y'all, is just just naturally curious. Yeah. What are you doing in terms of your curriculum to make sure that that curriculum connects with Latinx? I mean, it's a lot. I mean, that's a huge job. So I'm just curious, is that something that has been discussed? Is that something that's... Maybe it hasn't been discussed yet. I'm just curious where that is, because I honestly believe that how to manage money is the same for everybody, but you have to be able to learn to connect with that person, their culture, all of that. And of course, we're in a country that has a ton of cultures, so you have to know how to connect. And I'm just curious, what does that look like or what are your thoughts, what's happening just my own curiosity. I love this question. And it's actually something that is starting to come up a lot more in education these days. It's a huge concern that curriculum materials need to be culturally relevant to students. And culturally relevant does not mean that it has Latinx written all over it or that it has Black American references in it. It's not about like a specific ethnic group standing out more than others. It's about looking at the actual students in the classroom and responding to their cultural needs. So when you think about the Latinx community, for example, we are a very collectivist culture. Collectivist culture means that we're rooted in thinking about the success of ourselves as a whole group, as a community. So if I am successful, I cannot just celebrate my own success. I have to help my mother and my father and my siblings and my aunts and my cousins and my uncles. And that is part of that collectivist mindset. If I do well, we all do well. I have to support everyone in my family. And it's why a lot of our communities are actually very multi-generational. You have grandparents living in the home, parents living in the home, kids living in the home, little cousins, and it's very multi-generational. 
And so thinking about that, what we've done is in each of the lessons, there is like some sort of activity that allows students to reflect on their own upbringing and their own personal values around money. So actually there's a whole unit for that in both the middle school curriculum and the high school curriculum, which is all about like your values and money. And you're literally just thinking about like, what messages did you get as a kid? Like, what do you think money is for? Like, what are your beliefs around money? Like, do you think money is a great thing that can help you achieve more in life? Or do you think money is just going to bring more problems? Like, and we don't give these prompts, but we just give them the opportunity to reflect and write and journal and respond and just talk and think about like, yeah, you know, when I was little, the only money memories I have is my parents fighting about money in the house. Like, that's really important. You need to be able to say that in a safe space, in a classroom, out loud, knowing nobody's going to judge you. And putting that out there is part of this therapeutic experience of accepting it, acknowledging it, and now trying to work through it and improve your mindset so that you don't repeat that negative, I guess, scarcity mindset and negative kind of atmosphere and aura around money in your own household in the future. So we definitely do that. And then in terms of like supporting Latinx community besides just the students in the classroom, we're thinking about their families. A lot of times their parents don't really even speak English. In my mm-hmm. case, you know, if I went home with a lesson about investing in the stock market, my mom would look at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and so what we've done is we've taken a core of the curriculum and translated it into Spanish so that if you're assigned something and you're working on it, you can show your parents the Spanish version or your family the Spanish version and you can they can complete it alongside with you. So we have a Spanish directory which I mean, I think that that is so important to be able to have these resources available in the native language, because the reality is a lot of parents feel disconnected to what their child is learning in school as a student. And one of the easiest ways to bridge that gap is to translate what they're learning into that native language for the parent. I love it. That's such a huge, huge task, because we're talking about different cultures (laughs) in the US, the Asian in the different languages. And oh, my gosh, I can't even imagine. Well, Yaneli, it's been such a pleasure. Ha sido muy, muy chévere estar aquí contigo. I've enjoyed the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think you're a powerhouse. And thank you for all that you do for the world of financial literacy and for the example that you are setting for other Latinas. So thank yeah. you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Jen. Listen, I'm just trying to get like you, girl. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> you're too much. You're too much. Thank you. What did you think? Wasn't Yaneli full of energy? And I absolutely love her personality. And I'm really, really impressed at everything that she does, not just the side, her own business in terms of creating content and everything, but just being really immersed in the field with her job and what a fulfilling job she has. You can connect with her on her YouTube channel. Definitely check it out. It's just you search Miss Be Helpful. But of course, I've got you because that will also be linked up in the show notes. Now, if you have been listening to all the episodes in a row for the past month or so, you have heard me mention my event, Financially Strong Latina. At the time that this episode is published, we will have already finished session one out of three, right? But that does not mean just because you missed it, let's say you're not registered just because you missed it, it is not too late to join us because for everyone who registers, those people that register will get 
access to the recordings because I realize we all got busy lives. I absolutely want you to be there live because it's more fun. <laughs> But if you have to miss it, if you are registered, you're covered. You get access to the recordings. So if at this time, When you're listening to this, and especially if you're listening to this the day that is published, make sure you get registered. You can do that at financiallystronglatina.com. That is financiallystronglatina.com. Get registered. You'll get access to session one and you'll get to enjoy the rest of the event. And have I mentioned that it's free again this year? All thanks to the sponsorship by AARP. Next week, we will be meeting with Christine from Betterment. And Betterment is really known for being a robo-advisor, but they're much more than that. We're going to learn what all they do and a little bit about Christine. And we will be discussing more specifically what they're doing in bringing 401ks to small business owners. So if you're a small business owner and you want to offer a 401k to your employees, Betterment is an option. Bueno, pues, that is everything. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in to today's show. Be sure to check out the show notes at jenhemphill.com forward slash 304. And remember that being the reina of your money starts at this moment simply by claiming it. I believe in you and so should you. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao.